It's a marked privilege that we each have this morning to be able to come together on an occasion like this one. As we have noted already by way of announcement and by way of the songs that we've sung and the prayer that we've so joyously engaged in, what an opportunity to thank God for His bountiful blessings toward each of us this past week. And in fact, to have given us this privilege of assembling on this beautiful Lord's Day to honor and pay homage to the great and all-powerful God of heaven. As we've come together for this particular aspect of worship, the time has come that we can engage in a study of a portion of His will, that we might do so for bettering ourselves to better understand and be challenged by the things He's revealed to us. As you know, for the past few weeks, we have been looking at a series of lessons involving those books of the Bible. They're involved in the study of the Bible Bowl this year. Those are, again, the books of James through Jude in the New Testament. And we have looked somewhat interestingly at the book of James and some of the valiant lessons that we learned, and of course we did so briefly. But how great that wisdom is from above and how challenged you and I are to always be doers of the Word and not hearers only. And then we looked at First Peter and appreciated the great salvation that belongs to us and the price that had to be given to accomplish it, namely the great example, Jesus Christ. Then, last Lord's Day morning, we looked at our great enemy, Satan himself, and noticed how different he is from godly living that ought to be our challenge and purpose through life. Today we begin another book. The third of our study is the book of Second Peter, and it is to that book I'd invite your attention both today as, as well as next Lord's Day. The book of Second Peter is a rather brief book in many ways. It only has three chapters, a total of 61 verses. And as we study that book, we will again appreciate that there is a key idea that's to be found within it and a key word that guides our study and our motivation throughout it. As you and I study Second Peter, might we note that the key idea, the key theme that is set before not only the readers of Peter's day, but us as well as Christian growth. To grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as Brother Jeff read for us just a few minutes ago. The key verse in the book is the very last verse. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen is you and I may well seek or inquire about a key word, a word that appears so very often. It is the word knowledge. Some 16 times in 61 verses that word appears. It is clearly exceedingly apparent that in the mind of the Holy Spirit as He revealed it through Peter, knowledge is an essential matter. It is vital, it is exceedingly important, and it is not merely any old type of knowledge as we will study in our lesson this morning. And thus, with some of these ideas set before us, might we appreciate the distinction between this book and the one that preceded it. In First Peter, it was the idea of suffering and overcoming that. Here it is growth in Christ. Can we not agree that we each then need to be those who grow in Jesus, those who mature in the faith, and those who are stronger in matters spiritual and divine than what we have been in days gone by? And thus, yet one more time, we notice this book is as needful today as it ever was, as pertinent and as vital to you and me as perhaps ever. As we study then the matter of Second Peter 3, verse 18, I mentioned that that was the key verse of the book. Let's expound on that verse a bit more fully. What is it that's being stated to us in that grand finale of the book of Second Peter? 
Let's read it again. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. In what way did that verse begin? I might ask you to appreciate with me the verbs that are employed. Grow in grace and in knowledge. About that verb grow, what does that mean? We understand that that word means for something to elevate in stature, to become more mature than it was in the past, to in fact become more stable and that which is of greater value in terms of understanding, comprehension, and its physical atmosphere. Notice here that there is a strong word used, grow. You and I can notice that the verb tense that appears is that of active. The verb move that appears as well as the voice is that of which is imperative. This, my friends, is a command. It is every bit as strong a command as any other commandment in the entirety of God's New Testament. You and I are required, we are commanded to grow. As we see in our lesson then this morning, we shall have to ask ourselves rather personal questions toward that end. In what way has that growth been understood? In what way have I taken advantage of it? To grow spiritually in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In order to appreciate the growth, where does it come from? How do we grow? We understand that uh, item in our garden. It needs the proper nourishment. There must be water and there must be sunshine and there must be the other nutrients available to it. What about spiritual growth? What is the environment? Where does this resourcefulness come? Let's go back to chapter 1 of this book, verse 2. We had begun by noting that we're to grow in the grace. Verse 2 of that opening chapter reads, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Peter, where is it that that grace comes? Through the knowledge of our God and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're beginning to see again the word knowledge already. It is exceedingly important what knowledge one has and what knowledge one relies upon and what knowledge one pursues. This knowledge of which we're studying is the knowledge of God and of His Son, Christ Jesus. Our world is awash with knowledge. We understand that fact. There's a great deal of medical knowledge. There's vastness in scientific knowledge. There's good common sense knowledge. But my friends, that which Peter emphasizes and over and over again, and that knowledge which is commanded of us, is a knowledge that is to be found in the wonderful Word of God, the knowledge of God and of His Son, Christ Jesus. These other types of knowledge, though physically valuable they may be, they do not lead to eternal life. They do not save the precious soul of any person. This knowledge then must be understood in this way. All knowledge is not equal. From the perspective of eternity, some knowledge is of vastly greater significance. Didn't Jesus say in John 8, 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And in this book, we've already seen the emphasis upon knowledge of God and of His Son. As we contemplate the character of knowledge... Notice in chapter 2, verse 20, what that knowledge was able to accomplish. In what way were these able to escape the pollutions of the world? Through the knowledge of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ. May you and I never underestimate Bible knowledge. 
knowledge of God, knowledge of His Son, for that is by far and away the most critical, the most sufficient of all kinds of knowledge. So significant is that knowledge. We again notice here in verse 18 of chapter 3, we are commanded to grow not only in grace, but in that knowledge. That is an absolute commandment. Might we ask, how successfully have you and I been at accomplishing that growth? Near the bottom of this screen, I ask you to compare some other passages that illustrate that significance. In Matthew chapter 25, as Jesus here gave a dramatic scene, and one that was in the form of a parable, it's one that's rather familiar to us. He said, a certain man went into a far country, and prior to his departure... He called his servants and departed unto them. One, he gave five talents. To another, two talents. And yet to another, one talent. And he said, Occupy therewith until I return. In the verses that follow, as Jesus made the statements of that parable, we remember that the master returned and proceeded to reckon with those servants about the character of what they'd done with those talents. To the five-talent man, we learn the following. He had traded therewith and gained five more. The one to whom had been given two talents, he traded therewith and had gained two more. But that one talent man had gone and hidden his in the earth, and when the master returned, he merely returned back the one he'd been given. We well remember, though, that Jesus, as he made the final statement of reckoning, he made a pronouncement of blessing upon the five-talent man and also upon the two-talent man. But what about the one-talent man? Now notice, growth had taken place in the two previous cases. The five-talent man had occupied therewith and had gained others. And the same was true of the two-talent man. But to the one-talent man, he rather happily gave back the one he had. But what was the response of the master? Verse 26, Thou wicked and slothful servant. Thou wicked and slothful servant. And finally in verse 30, Cast this one into outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master was not satisfied or happy with the fact that only the same amount that had been given was returned. There had been no growth. There had been only stagnancy. There had been merely a plateaued region. The Scriptures time and again inform us that we, from the time we proceed in our Christian journey, must grow continually finally until we lay the mantle down and leave the mortal coil of this old flesh behind. The power of Christian growth. As Peter emphasizes that very thought, might we ask a bit further some other meanings, some other extended understandings of this point. Given the effort and the energy involved in Christian growth, why is it so important? Why is it so essential and so vital? Well, one answer might obviously be because God commanded it. Is there any other reason? In chapter 3 of this book, we see the answer is yes. As Peter ultimately closed the book in chapter 3 and addressed the character of Christian growth, why did he say it was so vital? That chapter begins in verse 3 by observing the fact that there are those who scoff at Jesus' second coming. But may you and I understand there is no reason to scoff. Oh, it's true that God's timetable is not our own. One day is with the Lord's a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day, Second Peter 3.8. But that does not set aside the fact He is coming back. And when He comes back, this whole world and all the physical things thereof shall be destroyed, Second Peter 3, verse 10. 
Isn't it an amazing fact that when He comes back, there shall be the character of a reckoning just like there was in that parable of the talents. A time when we will give accounting of all of the deeds and dispositions of the body. There will be a day of judgment. There's the motivation for spiritual growth. If I have not grown significantly, if I have not matured in the faith that is in such a way to be pleasing to God, I will be judged incompetent. I will be judged unsatisfactory. And I'll be judged as condemned. We are commanded to grow. It is not an option. There are times in the Scriptures when the word perhaps or other words like that are employed, but it is not so in this verse. Grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, we appreciate that God desires all to be saved. That doesn't mean that all shall be, but God desires it to be so. In 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants all to come to repentance and to grow, to mature, to proceed in spiritual excellence throughout life. The steadfastness spoken of in verse 17 is a final warning. When you and I obey the precious gospel in the act of baptism and thus have our sins washed away and the Lord adds us to the church, it's at that point we proceed to grow. At that point we're newborn babes in Christ. And we have a challenge to grow throughout life, to mature, to comprehend, to understand more thoroughly and better. To say all that is to say how significant and how powerful it is to understand the importance of spiritual growth. As you can see near the bottom of the screen, so far we have discussed some general concepts about growing spiritually. Is it any wonder then in chapter 1 that Peter identifies the thankfulness that we ought to have for those whom we may know who will encourage us to grow spiritually? Oh, indeed, in verses 12 through 16 of chapter 1, Peter says, I will not be negligent to always put you in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. How thankful we then should be for those faithful Bible preachers and teachers who will remind us on a constant basis of those things that shall lead us to an eternity in heaven, or to that faithful husband or wife for whom we owe so much, and who can be there to challenge, to help teach, and to guide us throughout this life. For even our children, our parents, who set before us proper examples of Christian spiritual growth. We ought to be thankful for those influences wherever and however they may come. For indeed, they shall redound into eternal glory for us. These things are certainly pressing, aren't they? Peter, no wonder, emphasizes in this book the nature of the power of God's Word, for that is ultimately where the knowledge shall come. Return with me to chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. As he begins the character and power of that revelation, he says... According as His divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Peter, where is the information to be found that produces spiritual growth? Notice all of it is in the Word of God. 
We thus ought not expect to find it in visions, in small still voices of the night, in other matters related to the self-help books in the libraries of Putnam County. Peter said, all things that pertain to life and godliness are right here. That's a wonderful and a comforting thought, isn't it? We never need thus fear that there's some part left out, that there's some particular revelation of heaven that men have lost or forgotten. Every bit of it is here. Sixty-six divinely given books, and within them is the very mind and revelation of God. And those books have everything needed for life and godliness. Those various individuals throughout the centuries who have had the audacity to set forth that other books stand on equal footing with the Scriptures have sorely deluded themselves. And they have misled thousands and thousands of others into the way of wickedness. There is no book comparable to the Bible. It stands alone as the only revealed will of heaven. And in Second in First Corinthians 1, verses 9 through 14, we learn that what God has revealed is truly great in every respect. Peter thus made note of that fact here. Notice in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 1 how significant it is to properly interpret it. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation... For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Notice, we are not at liberty to impose our private interpretations on the Scriptures. It is what God intended, and we must rightly divide it to ascertain what He revealed. That old adage rings as ever true today as ever. A text taken from its context becomes a pretext. And thus, its power has been forfeited and lost. These scriptures then lead us to notice in verse 21 of that opening chapter that the holy men of God, as they wrote the Bible, they were superintended and guided by the Holy Spirit. They weren't writing their own thoughts. They weren't writing their perspectives or their dispositions. They were recording what God desired them to record. And when you and I read the Bible, we are reading the very mind and thoughts of God. It is His revelation. It is indeed the character, the thought of God in the words of God. As important as this spiritual growth is, as vital as we have seen it to be, that leads us perhaps next to understand that the qualities that are to be involved in spiritual growth are also revealed in this book. There are those who might say, I have grown spiritually. How do you know? What testimony, what evidence can be presented to substantiate that claim? Peter says in this book that it is not imaginary. If one grows spiritually, there ought to be evidences to manifest that growth. And in chapter 1, he will list them for us. Let us look somewhat intently at these elements involved in spiritual growth to ascertain and learn more clearly about my growth and yours. Has it served the degree that God desired, or have I fallen short? Are things amiss and are things lacking? Turn back with me then, please, to chapter 1, and let us notice especially verses 5 and following. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. <clears throat> and beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. 
As we read there through verse number 7, we have encountered a rather impressive listing, wouldn't you say? And notice that these are the very ingredients involved in that spiritual growth that we have mentioned already. Let's return and notice how it begins. And beside this, giving all diligence. That word diligence means with great earnestness and effort and zeal, with great eagerness. It is not an optional, trivial matter to add these to our lives. Peter said, brethren, these are sufficiently vital and these are as commanded of heaven. They must, with tremendous sacrifice and effort, be included as a part of your life. With that noted, how did he begin? Add to your faith. There is a foundation of faith. This foundation is the very matter on which all the others will be built. There has to be a degree of that thing defined in Hebrews 11.1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And without it, one cannot be pleasing to God, Hebrews 11.6. That faith is the foundation of the character of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3.11. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. One thus has to have an opening foundation of the understanding there was a man named Jesus. He was the Son of God. He was sent by God from heaven to save a world lost in sin. Once a person has that degree of faith and accepts that with trusting character and faith, to that he may then add the following, virtue. What is virtue? What is what quality does that define? The Greek word that's translated virtue means moral excellence. It means that which is of outstanding moral and noble character. Thus, we see that in terms of Christian growth, you and I, as we mature in Christ, must come to better appreciate what's noble and approved of God and what is not. That is, that which can be successfully pursued, but that which must be avoided if one is to be pleasing to God. Moral excellence, that which is of high and noble and approved righteous character before God. But to your faith add virtue, but then knowledge. We noted that's the key word in the book, knowledge. We've already learned that it's not arbitrary knowledge. It's the knowledge of God and of His Son, Christ Jesus. Oh, how valuable the character of that knowledge is. A study of God's holy word. When you and I delve into it and allow it to operate in our life, to correct the things that are amiss and to fortify that which is already proper and strong, we will be made over into the very nature and character of the person God would have us to be. No wonder the Bereans were so highly complimented in Acts 17.11. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the Scriptures daily whether those things were so. The nature of God's Word, as you and I consider the nature of its study, we're told that, in fact, we should rightly divide it and study to show ourselves approved unto God. Isn't it amazing that as one considers the various verses in the Bible that encourage us to study it with power and with regular frequency, we see that those verses are those two which are commanded. The nature of all of these perhaps challenges us with what follows. Temperance. Add to your faith virtue, knowledge, temperance. 
Here we encounter another one of those words that in the Greek does not mean what that word means to you and me today. That doesn't necessarily simply have reference to what our current English dictionary may say temperance means. That word temperance simply means self-control. A mastery of one's propensities and desires. Quite often we appreciate that our world is awash in a lack of temperance, in intemperance. Folks pursue whatever the desires of the flesh lead them to pursue, and they give no thought to the contrary. They are happy to engage in all forms of whatever the act may be, godly or not. And all too often it's ungodly, isn't it? And the world seems to find pleasure in those things. Peter warns us that we must control our desires and lusts and propensities of the flesh. And does that not remind us of that text in James 1? Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of what? His own lusts and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. When you and I allow the pursuit of our lusts to go unchecked, we are without question wading into the deep waters of sin and wickedness. We without question are then striving to move apart from the very character of the temperance that's commanded of us here. The ancient world in which Peter lived was known in many instances for its intemperance. Such places as the city of Corinth was awash in all forms of ungodliness. And yet to them, even Paul warned them, you must master the character of those desires of the flesh and not be given to the pursuit of them. Following this matter of temperance in verse 6, we notice that next is patience. In the Greek, that word patience means perseverance. It means steadfast endurance. You can't give up. You can't quit. You can't thus lose sight of the focused end of what you're working for. You must continue onward despite the persecution and difficulties that may come your way. You and I see how needful that message is today. For in fact, to whom is the crown of life promised in Revelation 2.10? Be thou faithful until death. It isn't promised to those who start but never finish. It isn't promised to those who begin the race but then give up before the end is reached. Perseverance. The character and disposition of not quitting, but yet to be faithful until Jesus even until the end. Notice also, in addition to perseverance, is godliness. The character of godly living. Did we not see that in the book of 1 Peter? How often that was mentioned to us. 1 Peter 3.11, for example. How that we are urged and even commanded to have a life, a disposition approved by heaven, and that bears all the marks of godliness. That thought alone is sufficiently challenging to remind us that godly living stands opposed to the very influence of Satan. Satan will try, of course, with great effort to cause us to not live godly. He'll bring influences into our life that will in fact urge us to do the very opposite of godliness. But we must be strong. We must be fortified. We must be strong in the faith. In addition to this matter of godliness, he quickly races to the conclusion with Brotherly kindness. That word simply means brotherly love. 
the love of the brethren. How often does the New Testament remind us that in the church we have brothers and sisters in Christ, those who in fact have as their desire the same destination as we, those who strive to make it to heaven, those who look forward to that great and noble entrance onto that occasion of that day. Jesus said, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. John thirteen thirty four. And in John 15, 12, he said, Love one another as I have loved you. Later we read in 2 John verses 3 and 4, the nature again of how we, though it's not a new commandment, are to love one another. That love is something for which we often pray here at Pippin. In our prayers, we pray that we may have that disposition of brotherly kindness and love one toward another, and that it may grow and redound into greater character. That's an appropriate prayer. For we notice that is an element of our Christian graces, and it's an element in which we are to grow. The final thing listed is that of love. Charity, as the King James reads it, a general disposition of love in all the ways that are commanded by God. We know, and for instance, in Matthew 5, that we're to love our enemies. We've already seen we're to love our brethren in Christ. We know, of course, that in the family we love our wife, we love our husband, we love our children, we love our parents. We notice, though, first and foremost must come a love for God. Didn't Jesus teach in Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, that the first commandment is to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind and with all thy strength. And the second commandment likened unto it to love thy neighbors thyself. Love is a critical and foundational element in Christianity, isn't it? A general understanding of a desire to benevolently act appropriately toward others. And as you can see, the definition for that word love, as I've listed there on the screen, involves conscious decision, willful volition. It's important then that you and I illustrate and demonstrate all of these Christian graces and to do so with increasing magnitude as our years with Jesus roll onward. Are you and I growing as we should? Notice what will happen if we are. What's the promise stated in verse 8 of chapter 1? If we grow appropriately, having added these to our life, he says, For if these things be in you and abound... They make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, our life will be full. It will be appropriate and it will be mighty toward the power of godly character. It will bring glory to God and it will aid others about us. But what about that one who lacks these things? That person who does not grow appropriately. The next verse tells us, He that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. That person has a spiritual seeing problem. He has forgotten he was purged from his old sins. He has forgotten the gratitude he ought to have toward the God of heaven and the thankfulness to his Son, Christ Jesus. Furthermore, those questions lead us to assess ourselves rather dramatically. We've talked in general terms about much of this. It's time to perhaps make it personal. I would ask that you submit and place your name into these questions as we ask ourselves individually each of these. Peter has listed the elements of Christian grace and these matters for us to grow in. How successful have we been? 
He said, add to your faith virtue. So what about your faith? Is it stronger now than it was, say, three years ago? Have you, has your magnitude of faith been elevated over the course of months and years? Has your degree of confidence and trust in the nature of the truth of the Bible and all the character of eternity been strengthened? If the answer is not yes, may I ask, is there a problem? Have you reached a plateau and no growth has occurred thereafter? Remember, Peter said we must grow. But in addition to faith, what about virtue? Has your understanding of moral excellence improved? Has your keen senses been sharpened to know what God approves and what He doesn't? If not, you haven't seemed to have grown the way that you ought to have. There seems to be a difficulty. If a child in his or her growth seems to stunt or stops growing far sooner than we expect, we perceive there's a difficulty. It would seem there's a spiritual difficulty if your growth hasn't continued its progression. In the third place, knowledge. Do you know more about the Bible now than you did three years ago? Have you, have you achieved a better understanding of the richness and the fullness and the various things to be found in it? If the answer is no, then there seems to be a growth problem. There seems to be something that has stifled your growth. Have you ceased looking into its blessed pages on an often and frequent and daily basis? What about the next item in Peter's list? We have studied so far various elements and how vital they are. But these next continue in that same way. Self-control. Are you better able to control those propensities and matters of the flesh than you have been in the past? That's an easy question. It's either a yes or a no. Where do you and I stand? Have we grown the way we should? Nextly, in addition to that matter of self-control, perseverance. Is your faith sufficiently stronger that you are less likely to give up on Christ now than in the past? Maybe in times past you reached a point of despair and discouragement. Having advanced through it, are you now stronger than you were in terms of perseverance then? These are good questions. Only each of us individually can answer them. No one can answer for me and no one else can answer for you. Finally, may we observe, what about a godly life? Is it understood and perceived by those who observe and watch your life a greater element and sense of godliness now than in days past? That's a fair question. We are urged and commanded to grow in godliness. What about brotherly kindness? Is my love of the brethren stronger and more fortified now than in the past? What about my general love as commanded in all the Bible? Christian growth, spiritual growth, that's the key theme of the entirety of this book. And it does raise some dramatic personal questions. What are your answers to those questions? If your answers have not been as you would wish, there is opportunity and time to make the adjustments. Open the pages of God's Word and let those words find fulfillment in the character of your life and you will grow spiritually. That's God's promise. If you are continuing that growth spiritually, may you continue to be blessed. May you continue to find richness and happiness in all the things found in the Word of God. As we conclude our lesson this morning, may we thus again, in terms of an invitation, ask these things. The book of Second Peter has challenged each of us. Am I growing the way I should? If you've never begun the Christian growth at all, having never become a Christian, today is the day to begin. 
Today's the day to start that journey with Jesus, and we could aid you in response as you obey the gospel. If you have begun that journey, but you have for some reason reached a point where you haven't continued to grow, come back to that first love. Let brothers and sisters know about your desire. We will encourage as well as you can encourage us. It's a marvelous journey throughout this life to reach the golden strand of glory. If we could assist anyone this morning in your obedience to Jesus, delay no longer, but let us do that even now while together we stand and while we sing.